This is Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works, and you're listening to Books on Pod, and I've just had a really interesting conversation about my book. Thank you very much for interviewing me. Hello, readers. Roman Mars is the creator and host of 99% Invisible, a wildly popular radio show and podcast that explores architecture and design, and he's the author of the new book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Roman, thank you for the time today. What was your initial goal with writing The 99% Invisible City? Well, we've been doing the podcast for about 10 years, and there was something about having all those stories locked up in an audio format, as much as I love audio and I love storytelling through audio. If you wanted to ever look up who was the person who was responsible for curb cuts, you know, like in Berkeley, you would have to like go back, listen to this episode, take aside 20 minutes and listen to it. And there's something about breaking open all that thought and the worldview of 99% Invisible and allowing it that you can peruse it and you can check stuff out and you can reference it. It just seemed like the right time to do it. And also we were just kind of ready to create this new object that was beautiful, that worked in and of itself. I mean, I never wanted to create a, a version of a book that was just a version of the podcast. Like I really wanted it to be its own beautiful artistic object. And it was just the right time to do it. A lot of these little details are things that we see, but don't necessarily think twice about things that may have a considerable impact on our safety. How does the Knox box apply here? The Knox box is something that once you're aware of it, you will see it everywhere. And it's this little black box that's usually at about eye level next to doors in usually commercial areas. And it is a little safe that has a key to it. And inside of that box is usually the keys to open the building that it's attached onto. And the person who has the key to those Knox boxes is the fire department. So rather than having an emergency and having to knock down the door, Knox boxes are there so that they have a master key that open a bunch of Knox boxes and they can open that up and then they can just let themselves in and save people's lives without risk of injuring themselves and actually damaging the building. So they're a safety device. The chapter titled Camouflage includes a write-up on stink pipes. What exactly are stink pipes? <laughs> They're usually a thing that just is there to exhaust sewage. And so rather than make it so that this thing is just this ugly industrial tube that's coming out of the ground, there have been cases, notably in Australia when sewage was new, to clad them in something like an obelisk so turn it into a monument even though it's really the main function of that thing is just to exhaust stinky gases the holland tunnel is a vehicular tunnel under the hudson river that connects new york city to new jersey it's an impressive feat in architecture especially when you learn that it was built in the 1920s but that's a lot of cars going through an enclosed space every hour of every day why do people who use it need not worry about toxic buildup from car exhaust poisoning them when driving through yeah they spend a lot of time on this and what they ultimately end up doing is having these little buildings actually sizable buildings that are there on the surface that you might not know what they're for but they're they're in the water and they are buildings that are just there to exhaust and exchange the gas and bring in fresh air into the tunnel and exhaust all the noxious fumes from the automobiles and that's why it's possible to maybe even idle in your car underneath it when no fresh air is getting to you. This world has become increasingly reliant on cell phones and thus cell phone towers, but people don't necessarily want the eyesore of a cell tower in their neighborhoods. 
What are some of the unique structures used to camouflage cell phone towers? Well, they mainly try to turn them into trees, and they do this with varying degrees of success. <laughs> and so a pole that's used to have a cell phone signal on it is called a monopole, and the first camouflage was called a monopine. And it's a long, straight trunk, and it has some branches on it. One of the things that is funny about the camouflage is that the more branches it has, the more camouflaged it can look, but also the more branches it has, the more expensive, like in terms of material, and also the heavier it is. And so they tend to cut corners. And so when you see a really bad spindly looking tree, like almost like a Snoopy Christmas type tree, it's very likely that that's a cell phone tower. What are accretions and why does a former pro baseball player make an appearance in this book within that chapter? This is one of my favorite parts of the book and and one of my favorite stories we've ever told. So the city is this organic object. It's made by all of us living in the city. And there's lots of things that are made. And then there's these vestiges that are left over that are not used anymore. And this Japanese artist named Akasagawa Genpei, he noticed at some point in one of his walks, he noticed a set of stairs, like a few steps going up and then a landing and a few steps going down. And at the landing where there would normally be a door to necessitate this set of stairs. There was no door. And he was so interested in this vestige, this thing that used to have a purpose, this stairway, but didn't have a purpose because there's no door there. And what really, really lit him up, what really intrigued him, was that the stairs, the railing had been recently painted. So it had been a maintained, useless object. This set of stairs had been made to look good, even though it served no purpose. And when he was trying to think about a name for it, what came to mind was this baseball player, this fellow named Gary Thomason, who was a major league baseball player here in the States. And at the end of his career, he took a contract to play baseball in Japan. And there he was a very, very expensive player, but he just could not find his groove in Japan. So he led strikeouts in Japan, but he was very, very expensive, but he was expensive, but sat on the bench. So he was this expensive useless maintained object and so he named these objects in a city thomasons after gary thomason and he was a huge fan of the giants the the yumiori giants that he was a part of and he was a big fan of gary thomason in fact and he thought this would be a fun moniker for him and how he wanted to call it so now people call him thomasons all over the world and they're these like sort of little delightful vestiges that you can find in the city and Yeah, it's a funny tip of the hat to uh, baseball. No doubt about that. When (laughs) I lived in Chicago, although I'm in Austin now, when I lived in Chicago, a bridge that spanned the Chicago River and connected the north and south parts of downtown also had a large number of padlocks clipped to its railing running next to its eastern sidewalk. These locks were placed there by people as a show of love to their significant other, something that's actually fairly common around the globe. Do we know who placed the very first love lock, and why has this practice become controversial over the past decade? So this tradition starts way back before World War I in a Serbian town called Vernakabanya. There's a love story there of a school teacher named Nadia and an army officer named Relia. And they had declared their love on a local bridge before he went off to go fight in World War I. It turns out that the relationship did not last and Nada was brokenhearted when Relia left her for a, another woman. And So this tradition was born that couples would etch their names into a padlock and then attach them to a bridge and throw the key into the water. And this was like a public symbolic act to seal their commitment to each other. And it's a fun tradition. It's fun to see them. But one of the big issues is that this many padlocks, when it's done so often, 
they structurally damage the bridge. You know, like they can actually, you can get so many that it makes the bridge get too heavy. And so cities have a real issue with them. And sometimes in places like Paris and even Serbia, the cities have to cut them off. And another way they've been dealing with it is they'll put like a little grating in a board next to the bridge so that people can do it there and not actually upset the structural integrity of the bridge itself. Why is Syracuse, New York, home to the only upside-down traffic light in the U.S.? This sort of dates back to when traffic lights were pretty new, so the deciding of red on top of yellow on top of green was not a foregone conclusion in a lot of ways. So they put in a traffic light in Syracuse, New York, maybe nearly the first traffic light in, in Syracuse, New York, and they put it in an Irish neighborhood that was deeply offended by the idea that unionist red would be above the Republic green. And so they started throwing rocks at it and they would knock out the lights every chance they got till they reversed them. They put the green on top of red and then the state would intervene and go, this is confusing, this is not good. And they would reverse it back and then they would throw rocks at it again until finally the city and state relented and kept it with green over red. And it's just a point of Irish pride. And so It's a fun little artifact of people interacting with their environment and saying that, you know, like a traffic light represents our values in some way. And in this case, it's a funny one. What do cats have to do with our ability to see roads that would otherwise be hidden by the darkness of the night? So this is a story of a fellow named Percy Shaw, who was in Halifax, England, and he was coming back from a pub. It's a foggy night. And normally, if it's a foggy night and there's a little bit of moonlight, he can rely on the trolley lines in the road, the silver tracks that help guide you on the road, that shared a bit of the road. But they had recently been torn up, and so he could not really see his way when he was driving on this dark and foggy road. And one night, it was particularly perilous, and a cat crossed his path. And cats can see well at night because they have a kind of reflective coating on the back of their retina called tapetum and lucidum and so that's when you see cat's eyes they shine in the night and he got this idea that there should be these little cat's eyes on the edges of roads so drivers at night can stay on the road and not risk driving off in dark and foggy conditions and so he invented these things called cat's eyes he named them cat's eyes after cat's eyes and he was convinced that these were going to be a huge part of safety on the road, but he really couldn't get a lot of takers. He experimented a lot because he owned a paving company, so he was able to iterate on it. But what really made them take off was in World War II, when there was all these bombing campaigns, the Germans were bombing the Brits. There was a real imperative to turn off lights and not have as many street lights and not have as many city lights on. And so cat's eyes just use the reflection of headlights to keep people on the road and keep them on the straight and narrow. And so the government bought thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of these and really took off and they spread all over the world. Different iterations have shown up in different parts of the world, but he was the person who originated that concept in the British Isles. I have two kids, ages four and six, who are huge fans of the dancing inflatable tube that shakes its thing outside of mattress (laughs) stores, car dealerships, and wireless shops around the country. What's their origin and when did they really hit the mainstream? Yeah, so these things are generally thought of as being extremely obnoxious, these inflatable tube men that are powered by fans on the ground. But there's a really cool and rich history to them. So they were invented by a man named Peter Menchel, and he's a puppetry artist from Trinidad and Tobago. 
And he was in charge of doing some pregame ceremonies and some cool stuff that would happen before the 96 Olympics. And so he created these tubes. He realized when you put a fan down and you put a tube and had arms that the fan would inflate the tube and the figures would kind of dance like the people did in Trinidad and Tobago. And so it was sort of a cultural artifact of pride. And he put those out in the world and with the help of an engineer, an Israeli engineer, created them. And it ended up that they got licensed and they got licensed everywhere, like to everybody. And so that's why you see them all kinds of places, but they have this real interesting cultural origin of the Olympic Games, and they were once sort of had more meaning. But even though a lot of that is lost, knowing that meaning makes these things that are often pretty irritating. In fact, like the city of Houston banned them at a period of time. It's kind of a cool thing. You know, now I have a much warmer regard for them, knowing Peter Menchel and knowing what a an interesting and cool artist he is that makes them more palatable and more interesting. No doubt about that. Now, our major cities are really overrun with advertising. It's an obnoxious visual pollution that really does zap our ability to focus as we're walking, driving, or biking around. Sao Paulo, Brazil practically banned advertising and obnoxious street signs in 2006. How has that worked out for them? It's been interesting. The first thing is that it even banned street signs like outside of a business. So businesses finally had to cope in a different ways to get people's attention and let them know what was where. And so when all the advertising came down, they started painting the buildings cool colors. And it really did help and make the environment a little bit nicer to not have the advertisement everywhere. The unintended side effect was that the billboards and the different signs hid a lot of aspects that the city might not want to be seen. So There were factories that people were living in and the signs covered it up. There were favelas that were run down and substandard for living and those were covered up by signs as well. And so the city began to have to really deal with them in a way that they never had before because it was just covered up by advertising. And slowly, I think it made a better city in the end, but not just because it cleaned things up and made people aware of all the bad things that were going on in the city and they couldn't be hidden by advertising. I mean, slowly they're introducing some new advertising, like companies will sponsor like a bus shelter, for example, and that will have an advertisement on it. And there's this idea that if they're going to have advertisement and use the public space in these ways, then companies have to pay for it. I love that you spent two pages on something that my current city of Austin, Texas is known for, moon tower lights, or moon towers (laughs) for short. How did these structures, made famous by the movie Dazed and Confused, come to be, and why are they still around here? It's just sort of an early light technology. It was extremely bright light that needed to be put so far above the street level for them to be tolerable. This like arc light that's buzzing, hissing, you know, like putting out (laughs) sparks. They could light up a whole block. It was a time period when actually there was a little bit of fear of crime actually like in Austin that was sort of precipitated them there. And it turns out that a lot of places began to get different incandescent lights and have better technology. But I think at the time 
when those were developing, Austin was going through some harder times and they just held on to their moonlight towers because they couldn't afford to replace them. And then they became like an icon and then people did not want to replace them. And so they held on and now they're this cultural artifact, even though they don't have the arcing really intense light that puts out dust and sparks. I mean, those arc lights used to have to be replaced really, really regularly. And, you know, now they're they're not made of that anymore, but they caused dust and soot and they were pretty unpleasant. But people wanted to be outside at night and that was the response. People may not realize it, but our ability to access the internet internationally is thanks to underwater cables that can get down to 25,000 feet deep in our oceans. How is this undertaking even possible? <laughs> yeah, truthfully, it's like hard to even fathom. I mean, when we think about the cloud, we don't think about the real cables that make it all possible. But there are these little fiber optic cables, they go on the seafloor. There's whole teams of people that are dedicated to maintaining them and to watching after them. There's enough redundancy now that when they happen to get caught by an anchor or a curious shark or something, there's enough redundancy to reroute the signal so that global communication isn't completely ground to a halt. But still 99% of the internet traffic does not go through satellites. It goes through these cables. And it's one of those things that I know because we researched it and it's like in the book, but it's still like, it doesn't feel real that these cables across the ocean are so critical and they seem so delicate and fragile. And I just can't imagine how they operate, but they do. I would like to see a viral video of a shark trying to chew through one of these cables. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a bit surprising to learn that some city planners are questioning whether signals, signs, curbs, and barriers keep our roads safer What's the rationale behind this naked streets movement? And are there any examples of its implementation? Yeah, so naked streets is an interesting concept. And it has to do with the fact that when we're slightly more agitated and aware, we make better decisions as drivers. And so sometimes we rely a little too much on signs and signals. And we don't look out for cyclists and pedestrians because they're supposed to only happen at intersections and when there's a light and all that sort of stuff. And so we don't notice them if there's any kind of violation of the general rules and, and they can be kind of dangerous for people. And so the concept behind Naked Streets is you create a space that is much less labeled open and a pedestrian can use the road as they see fit. You have to make eye contact with the driver. The driver has to let you pass. There's a real communication that has to happen for it all to function and it usually functions pretty well like for the most part these intersections are safer because people become extremely aware when they have to negotiate each of these things individually depending on the actual environment and the moment that's happening these have existed in the uk and they're still you know i don't know how they would do here in the us but i think it's worth exploring like this idea that we make drivers complacent by these rules. And I think everyone kind of intuitively knows this. If you live in a suburb with cul-de-sacs and kids playing and stuff like this, you drive differently and you're like more aware. And there aren't real codified rules as to what to do if there's a kickball game in the cul-de-sac. You just pay attention and you approach cautiously and you make sure the kids see you. And sometimes they move out of the way or sometimes you have to find another way, to, you know, what, another way to go or whatever it is. But we're used to this. We've done this before. But as a strategy, it's kind of new and we're still sort of figuring it out. 
International districts like Chinatowns are common across the country, but why were so many of these built using stereotypical and antiquated architectural ideas? Yeah, this is really just kind of about tourism. So when the Chinatown of San Francisco burned down in 1906, the Chinese population there, they operated in Chinatown, which is the same kind of Victorian architecture that existed everywhere else in the city. But they were a real powerful commercial block. And so in order to sort of attract people and to, when they rebuilt, they began to use this sort of old Chinese like pagodas and, and these type of architecture that was not present in Chinatown. And it harkens to the sort of uh, what the West thinks of as China more than how Chinese think of themselves. And this idea of the chinoiserie, the Chinese for Westerners' sake, really took off in Chinatowns all around the country and the world. And it's just sort of a tourist version of China, but it appeals to people. People got used to it. They think of that's what Chinatown is all about. And so it's just part of this weird kind of game. We all kind of know, but we all like it. And so we put on this costume for the sake of tourism. But the architecture that's represented and the weird sort of exaggerated architecture and is old-fashioned and fussy to someone who is actually from China. <laughs> Why is there an island in Massachusetts that's legally called Busta Rhymes Island? <laughs> well, it's not quite. I hope it is someday recognized for its true name. But naming things is a complicated process when it comes to geography. It's an island in a lake, and there's a fellow who was constantly canoe and have fun on this little tiny island and at some point inside of Google Maps, which you can modify, he named it Buster Rhymes Island because he was a fan of Buster Rhymes. <laughs> but there's a lot of rules when it comes to naming things. The most notable is that you most often can't name things after a living person and even a recently dead person. You have to be like at least five years when it comes to geographical names in the sort of federal standard for it. But he was pretty insistent on it. And one of the things that it makes your case when you want to name something after a person or name something at all is getting it widespread. So if people start using Buster Rhymes Island and people um, always refer to it as such and it gets credited as that, then eventually it'll stick. And I have a feeling, thanks to our story and his own sort of tenacity, that Buster Rhymes Island will be an official name someday. Fingers crossed for that one. <laughs> How were the dead disposed of prior to cemeteries, and what led to the formal creation of cemeteries? The thing about cemeteries is they were much more integrated as part of the city before they became these big, sprawling complexes. So they would be smaller, they'd be next to churches. They were multi-use, like most times they were used as little parks in addition to being cemeteries. And it wasn't until, you know, more in the 19th and 20th century that we began to have these big cemetery complexes where it's only just like grave after grave after grave. And this is really notable here in the Bay Area where we're from with Colma. So there were a number of small cemeteries around missions and churches in San Francisco. But at a certain point, the city of Colma became the place where all of the dead bodies in the Bay Area, in the, the peninsula, are buried. Even the bodies buried historically in San Francisco were moved down to Colma. And there are millions of grave sites in Colma and only several thousand people. The dead outnumber the living, I think at least 10 to 1. 
and it's a sort of like a just a choice at a certain point where people really divided the living and the dead land in this world but that wasn't the case for the longest time we kind of lived with our buried bodies and they were just part of the normal landscape and now we really separate those things Synanthropes are animals that thrive in cities, things like pigeons and raccoons. Do pigeons deserve more respect than we give them? Oh, for sure. There's nothing biologically different between a pigeon and a dove. It's about location and our attitude towards them. (laughs) So it's a funny thing that when an animal thrives in our built environment, like a raccoon or a pigeon, we tend to get pretty contemptuous of their existence and think of them as competition when they're mostly not. They're mostly harmless. And so pigeons are incredible survivors and they were thought of in extremely high regard for most of their existence until people moved a lot into cities and then they began to see them as the flying rats or whatever it is. But it's all about attitude. They could be beautiful doves if you so choose to see them that way. We just think of them as dirty pigeons because they've got real prejudice, honestly. I feel like there's a little bit of prejudice in play with raccoons as well. Just how smart are trash pandas? They're incredibly smart. The city of Toronto have a real love-hate relationship with their raccoon population. And so the raccoons there get into the trash bins so easily. It was bad. It was kind of embarrassing. And so the municipal trash authority decided to create a raccoon-proof trash bin that had a round locking mechanism that was easy for a human and easy for it to be tipped over by a garbage truck and open up, but was supposed to be impossible for a raccoon, but it turned out to not be impossible for a raccoon. (laughs) And some raccoons actually did figure it out. And so the war of trash continues to Toronto to this day, although they did really improve it. The locking mechanism actually does a really good job um, for the most part, but you cannot stop trash panda. If they really want to get into a trash, they are just made for that. They have these nice, dexterous little hands. They're very smart. They can culturally like share what they've learned across other members of their species. It's quite a war between the Toronto Trash Authority and, and the raccoons. And last thing, Roman, we barely scratched the surface of all the great tidbits and information that you can find in the 99% Invisible City. I'm curious to know for you personally, is there somebody or something that really spurred your interest and love of this Invisible City? Yeah. You know, the first thing that I thought of when I wanted to do this show originally was I wanted to look at curb cuts. I was always fascinated by curb cuts, which are just the little ramps that make it so that if you have, you're in a wheelchair, you can get up onto the sidewalk and makes the city more accessible. And I always knew there was a story there, but I didn't know like how rich it was. And really one of the key people in that fight was a fellow named Ed Roberts, who was the first quadriplegic to be admitted into UC Berkeley as a student in the sixties. And he and an activist group of people called the rolling quads used to go out at night and sledgehammer the edges of sidewalks to make them wheelchair accessible. So they would sledgehammer the edges and they'd put some cement down. And they only did this a couple of times. It was really more of a a statement than an actual, like really remaking the built environment so it was more accessible. But the physical manifestation of that activism led to people taking this on as a real issue and really was critical in the adoption of the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, in 1991. And it all sort of centers on the built environment. Like there's so much richness 
when it comes to engaging with the built environment. It's not something that's secondary or an absent-minded extension of problem solving. I mean, the built environment is really a reflection of our values. And so I like looking at it closely to see what we've valued over time and how it's changed and what we can do with those lessons to make the city a better place for us in the future. He is Roman Mars, the creator and host of 99% Invisible, a wildly popular radio show and podcast that explores architecture and design and is the author of the new book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Roman, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this great book. Oh, thank you so much, Trey. I really appreciate your interest. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>